Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Jermaine Gale, pastor of the East Lansing University and Lansing Spanish Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now, here's Pastor Jermaine. It's a wonderful day, isn't it? In Michigan, I'm almost taken by surprise. Just a few days ago, it was pretty warm and hot, almost to the point of complaining. And then we are here. But God is good. It's always a pleasure to be in His house worshiping with His family. Let us pray together. Loving Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be here before you. Dear God, we come on account of Jesus and what He has done. There is nothing good in us but everything good in Him. And so we praise Your name for Your precious promises that where two or three are gathered in Your name, there You are in the midst. And so we're grateful, so grateful that we get to share this moment with You. This is Your day, Your time. And so, Father, we come hungering, wanting You to speak. And so we're listening. Speak to us now is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation and Relief is the title of our message. It was on October 1st of 1860 that a small group gathered together in Battle Creek to choose a name for itself. The denomination was represented by 25 delegates in Battle Creek. The church had a struggle with the concept of organization. Some believed that if the Seventh-day Adventist church were to be organized, it would represent Babylon. And so it was a struggle. There was a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion when it came to organizing the church and also choosing a name. Did you know that one of the names that were considered at this time for our church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, was the name the Church of God. That was the name on the docket to be discussed. There are some who were in favor of this name. If God didn't move, we would today be called the Church of God. But friends, there was something that happened in that gathering. A man by the name of David Hewitt stood up and said, We shall call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. And his voice was heard and a vote was made, 24 to 1. 24 in favor of Seventh-day Adventists, one opposed. Ellen White, in Testimonies for the Church, volume 1, page 224, commented on this name, the Church of God. She said this, I was shown that almost every fanatic who has risen, who wishes to hide his sentiments, that he may lead away others, claims to belong to the church of God. 
Such a name would at once excite suspicion, for it is employed to conceal the most absurd errors. This name is too indefinite for the remnant people. It would lead to supposition and suspicion that we had a faith which we wish to cover up. She then said this about the name Seventh-day Adventist. The name Seventh-day Adventist carries the true features of our faith in front and will convict the inquiring mind. Notice what she says. It carries the true features of our faith up front. You already know what we stand for. And will convict the inquiring mind. Like an arrow, she went on, from the Lord's quiver, it will wound the transgressors of God's law and will lead to repentance toward God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This name is important. It is our identity. We sit here today recognized by the world as Seventh-day Adventists. There's nothing to be ashamed of being a Seventh-day Adventist. Can I say that? There is nothing to be ashamed of. Friends, I want to tell you that this name has meaning. It stands for something. And we represent a movement in the world. There is no shame in being a Seventh-day Adventist. When I talk with people, I don't mumble the name under my breath. I say it loudly and boldly. This is who I am. My life was changed by a group of Seventh-day Adventists. And since that time, I've never turned back. God has been good to us as a church. God has been good to us as a church from the General Conference going all the way down to this local church in this community. Praise God that we had an honest man in Battle Creek. Did you know, by the way, that when David Hewitt was being reached by one of our pioneers, this pioneer went to the post office and asked a question. It was a curious question. Can you point me in the direction of the most honest man in town? And David Hewitt's name was brought forth. And as a result, David Hewitt was reached, the most honest man in town. This honest man stood up and said, we shall call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. And since that time, we have carried the name. Praise God for such a story. This great movement was launched from the tiny village in Battle Creek, not too far from here. There are people who make pilgrimages to Battle Creek every year to see where it all started. Propelled by prophecy like a rocket, powered by God's providence and the fire of His Spirit, this church grew, this movement that was centered in the Great Commission made an impact in the world. By 1870, the church grew from 3,000 to 16,000. The name was chosen in 1860. 1870, we went from 3,000 to 16,000 members. Can someone say amen? That is a result of the Holy Spirit working. As I was doing my research, I actually realized, it kind of hit me, that the house we just bought was actually built in 1870. It is quite possible, friends, that Ellen White visited our home. She was still alive. I don't know. There's no way to prove it. But I think it was so. So if you ever want to be blessed, come by. There is no doubt in my mind that God has been and continues to be good to our church. Today, there is no doubt in my mind that God is still leading this church. Today, friends, while you and I are in this local church, organized to serve this local community, 
placed right at the corner of Ann Street and Division. It is not by accident that we are here today. And God is still leading this movement. God's blessings fell on the Seventh-day Adventist church, and it continues to fall on the university church today. We, too, have a name, one that announces to the world our mission, the University Seventh-day Adventist Church, one that screams at the corner of Ann Street and Division that we have a unique group of people, that we have a unique mission to reach the people in our community. So what lessons can we draw from the history of our church? What lessons can we draw from the developments of the church in ancient times? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, which was our scripture reading today. Acts chapter 11. This is a curious portion of scripture. Acts chapter 11 is a moment of transition for the church. The church was growing in many ways, by the time we get to Acts chapter 11, the church was expanding its territory, its vision open. The world was its mission field, and the church was moving forward and conquering. Can someone say amen? The church was growing, bursting at its seams. Acts chapter 11, we find ourselves in the place called Antioch. This interesting location, this locale. The Bible says in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, starting with how it happened. Now, those who were scattered after the, what? Persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Spoke in Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. The church was still developing. Men left Jerusalem. They were being persecuted, and they traveled as far as Cyprus, in Antioch, preaching the word of God. Matthew Henry said it best. Satan wanted to scatter the church to lose the church, but God scattered the church to use the church. And so persecution was not a barrier to the gospel going forward. In fact, it propelled the church to a point where it grew beyond Jerusalem. But there are still some who preached only to the Jews. These, this group, went, they preached the word to no one but the Jews. But there were some who broke the mold. For the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. They broke the mold. These men of Cyrene, I can only imagine that their lives might have been touched by this story about a man, Simon of Cyrene. This man who carried the cross to Calvary, bore the weight of the wood and brought it to Dead Man's Hill. His life was forever touched. His story might have made an impact in the lives of these individuals, and so they could not keep the good news to themselves. They had to share it with whoever and wherever. And so they spoke. But notice what they preached. They preached the Lord Jesus. Friends, you can never exhaust such a message. When you have preached for 30 years, there's still more to be said about the Lord Jesus. 
when we have preached throughout our entire lives, there's still much more to be said about our Lord Jesus. You may study the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy, and yet still, when we get to heaven, there's more to learn about our Lord Jesus. Oh, friends, when you get to heaven, join the line, because I'm going to have a lot of questions for our Lord Jesus. And so they were preaching the Lord Jesus. These men, as I said, probably learned about the cross through Simon of Cyrene, a black man who carried the wood to Dead Man's Hill. These men of Cyrene decided that none were to be passed by. The good news was too good to be kept, only to a few. And Luke, the historian, tells us what they did. But notice the next text, verse 21 of Acts chapter 11. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And the great number believed and turned to the Lord. When the hand of the Lord is with the church, something happens. Can someone say amen? That's what we need today. Today we need more than anything else. We need not the hands of men. We need the hand of the Lord. The Lord's hands needs to be in the work. When the church refuses to be held back by its own opinions or prejudices, and she sees the hand of God and takes a hold of it, she begins to see that there are territories to be reached. The church begins to grow. When the church refuses to confine the gospel to a few, she begins to grow to a point of bursting at the seams. Let the church not restrict herself, but let the church cling to the hand of God and let it see what God is doing in the world. Antioch, by the way, was in the east. It was a metropolitan city under the Greeks and was becoming a hub. One of the three major cities of the then known world. Antioch, the men arrived there, as we've read before, as a result of persecution. God did use them. The church rapidly grew in Antioch, and the gates of hell did not prevail against the church because it was built upon the solid rock, Christ Jesus our Lord. The news went back to Jerusalem. It was too good. The church is growing. Antioch in the east. Jerusalem in the West, the message went back to the general conference, one might say. They heard what was happening and decided to take action. We read here in Acts chapter 11, verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. How did they respond? And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Notice how the church responded to this growth, this monumental growth in Antioch. The church got together, and they decided that they were going to send someone to help. Who did they send? I didn't hear you. They sent Barnabas. Barnabas was the man chosen. He was a good man. Barnabas was an encourager. In other words, the church is saying what is happening here in Antioch is so important, we need to send someone to encourage the brothers. Not to squash the work. We need someone to go and encourage the brethren so that they may continue to do the work. The Bible says in verse 24 and 25, when he came, meaning Barnabas, and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart 
that they should continue with the Lord. Notice what Barnabas does. He encourages them with purpose of heart. It's not just to encourage. He encouraged them with his heart fully involved. Friends, we need to encourage each other with purpose of heart. You see a struggling soul? Don't just close your eyes on them and pass them by. Encourage them with a kind of intensity. That they may continue in the faith. The Bible then says in verse 25, For he, meaning Barnabas, was a good man. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. As a result of Barnabas' encouragement, the church continued to grow. Always remember that we need encouragers. When the church is growing, always remember that we need to send encouragers. We need encouragers in these days. We need Barnabas in our midst. Friends, we need men like Barnabas. We need good men who will stand to encourage instead of criticize. We need men full of the spirit instead of opinions. We need men full of faith instead of doubt. So when we have those things, the church will continue to grow. <laughs> so Barnabas was there. He was excited by the news. The news was too good to contain. So Barnabas said to himself, I imagine, I need to find Saul. The Bible says in verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. In other words, Barnabas was like, Paul, this is so monumental. You need to come and check this out. And so Barnabas and Saul are now in Antioch. Verse 26, the Bible says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians. Where? The name was developed in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were so excited for the church that they stayed a whole year. And as a result of that gathering, a name was chosen. It might have been given, some scholars say, by the Gentiles because of the, how the Christians lived their lives. It is clear that their message was about Jesus. It is clear that their lives matched up to their message. And so the only conclusion the general public could come to is these men and women are Christians. And so they were first called Christians in Antioch. We were first called Seventh-day Adventists in Batter Creek. So we go back to our roots further than Batter Creek, going all the way back to being called a Christian. And might I say this to you, being a Christian also means something. There's nothing to be ashamed of of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. Our Lord and Savior has done so much for us. We should bear his name wherever we go. And we should never cover that name under a bushel. It must be boldly proclaimed that this is who we are. Followers of Jesus Christ, we have given our lives to him in full commitment. And may he use us when we see the need to be called Christians, followers of our Lord. So Paul and Barnabas were in this church for a whole year. But this church was attracting so many different people. 
It was growing. So can you imagine the university church having such an impact in this community that the GC sends a delegate and he's in the midst of our congregation and he's like, you know what? I need to go call someone else to be here. And they get an apartment locally and stay a whole year. Friends, the church in Antioch was powerful. Come on, somebody. Am I just talking to myself? <laughs> God is working in the midst of these people. This church was attracting men and women left and right. And I imagine one day during their Sabbath service, a stranger walks in, this man by the name of Agabus, a prophet. He comes in. I imagine him sitting down. He just listened maybe to the message of the congregation. And he knew he had some business to take care of. But he waited patiently for the moment. The sermon might have ended. All preached. And then he rose up before the congregation was dismissed. And he spoke. Acts chapter 11 and verse 28. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Agabus was traveled all the way to Antioch to deliver a message. And his message was a solemn one. Friends, prophecy is about to be fulfilled. There will be a famine in the land. It will be pervasive. It will go through all the world. All will be affected, impacted by this famine. How will the church respond? I imagine when Agabus spoke these words, the church might have thought back to what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 7. Jesus said, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. The church thought back to the moment of prophecy. Jesus had given them the prediction. This was a church that was born out of prophecy, friends. They understood the importance of it. They thought back on the words of Jesus for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. I want to tell you today that this church, when they thought back the prophecy, they were not afraid. They were not scared, because they also remembered the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 6. You see, we should never get to the point where we take away the intent of Jesus in giving us a clear picture of the future. His intention is announced in Matthew 24, verse 6. For he said there, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Jesus says in the presence, in light of prophecy being fulfilled, the first thing we ought to remember is that we should not be troubled. And when the world is getting worse, when the world is getting crazy, there's one thing that ought to characterize people of prophecy. Peace. Not an ounce of trouble. Not an ounce of fear. So the brethren, I imagine, fear was not their first response. Today I want to Take your minds to three questions I believe these gentlemen, these wonderful believers asked. 
themselves when they realized that prophecy was about to be fulfilled. When Agabus spoke, they meditated. They thought about the implication. The church, moved by the Holy Spirit, is never immobilized by tragedy. She actually realizes that this is a moment to answer the call. And so the church in Antioch responded in a way that I would like for us to spend the rest of our time considering. The Bible says in Acts chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. In order for them to get to this conclusion, I imagine them asking three questions. In a time of revelation, their first thought was relief. In a time where prophecy is being fulfilled, the church assessed the damage. She didn't just pull back in fear and rendered herself useless. The church didn't ask, what about me? The church said, who will suffer? Here are the three questions that I believe they asked that day. Number one, who is going to be affected most by the fulfillment of this prophecy? Second, what can we do about it as a church family? And third, who should we send to relieve the burdens people are facing? So let's talk about the first question. The church remembered the certain man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, that great lesson that Jesus taught in the story of the Good Samaritan. They remembered the great principle that the Samaritan lived by. This man didn't ask, what will this do to me if I help this unfortunate brethren? He instead asked, what will happen to him if I don't help him? This great famine, who will be affected the most by it? They determined in their gathering that Judea would need the most help. But there's something interesting that you don't really see on the surface. Because Judea was a place that had mostly Jews. The church in Antioch were Gentiles. And their first thought was, let's relieve the burden that the Jews are facing. The Holy Spirit is brilliant in bringing us together. And our needs, our needs are so important to God that He would bypass everything that stands in the way of us meeting the needs of others. They could have said, this land in the West, we are in the East, they are only Jews. They do not need money from Gentiles. In fact, Gentiles are not even regarded by the Jews. But no, they refuse to separate themselves by race or class. Regardless of Jew or Gentile, these men were women and brethren who needed us. They might live in Judea, but we refuse to follow the world and be separated by regions and people groups. So they decided. They could have said Judea was under bad leadership. Claudius Caesar's region, by the way, as history teaches us, Claudius Caesar was not a very good leader. He made a lot of bad choices in Judea. His regions were constantly teetering on the edge of famine. 
They could have said this was the government's fault and therefore the government's responsibility. But they refused to go that direction. They said, we need to take this personal. They could have said this was Caesar's responsibility, not ours. But no, they refused. The brethren needed help. For a church being moved by the Holy Spirit, wanting the world about what is to come is not enough, friends. We are a prophetic movement, but warning is not enough. We need to do more than just tell people about predictions. We need to do more than just tell people about revelations. We need to relieve the sufferings of people. Notice what the church did. They asked another question. The other question, I believe, is simply this. What can we do about it? After identifying who will suffer the most, they asked what can be done about the issue. This question triggered in their minds and hearts a kind of compassion, I believe, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's no other way it could be done. They dug deep in their hearts, their homes, their pockets, and each man, the Bible says, gave according to his ability. Can you imagine the church being so full of members who give according to their ability? There are many times where we choose to volunteer the ability of others and not to use our own ability, but not this church. Instead of stockpiling, they decided we will send what we can to the brethren in Judea. They determined who needed help, and they gathered the materials. The church should never just do assessments of the needs of people in the age of prophecy being fulfilled. It should also gather its resources and put them to work. This is not the time for talents to be hidden. This is not the time for spaces to be preserved. This is not the time for resources to be put away. When prophecy is being fulfilled, the church should come alive. And then the final question. Who shall we send? On the surface, you probably don't notice it. But I want to paint a picture for you here. When the church realized the dearth or the famine that was coming, they analyzed and they said, who is going to be hurt the most? What can we do about it? And then who should we send? The question led the church to identifying in their midst who was the best to take on the work. They could have sent someone from Antioch to follow through and carry on the mission. The church, I imagine, got together and they probably had a meeting and a general consensus was arrived at and they decided we're going to send Paul and Barnabas, their very best. These two men, they could have kept for themselves. Because Paul and Barnabas were a great benefit to the church in Antioch. They decided that they would send their best preacher, the Apostle Paul, on an errand to carry money. They could have said, you know, Paul, your gift is preaching. Stay here and preach another year. But they decided, no, people needed help. Paul, even if it means carrying money, do it. They could have said, well, during this famine, we ourselves need encouragement. Barnabas, please stay a little bit longer. But no, they said, Barnabas, you go too. 
they sent their best men to relieve the suffering of the people in Judea. And this teaches us something very, very important, friends. We serve a God who holds nothing back from us. And in responding to what he has done, friends, we ought not to hold anything back from those who are suffering. And that's what the church did. In a time of revelation, the church decided that they were going to send relief and they chose their best men to carry the work forward. Friends, do you see? The church was saying, we will hold nothing back from those who need us. We shall hold nothing back from those who are in trouble. We have received the revelation. We understand the vision. We see clearly the prophecy. Let us send relief. We know, and none can dispute, this year, that the coronavirus is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because Jesus also said, pestilences. We too are living in the age of prophecy being fulfilled. We are currently living in the age of revelation. And so friends, we too have a name. Seventh-day Adventists, what are you doing to relieve the suffering of those around you? What questions are you asking? I will turn it internally, because I struggled with this. When this thing first started, one of my first questions was, what's going to happen to me? I don't know about you, but that was my first question. I remember my wife and I would go to the store and I would wipe every single cart down before I touch it. And I looked at everyone. I don't know about you, but I looked at everyone with suspicion. Come on now. I'm in the checkout line and I'm like, did he just cough? But friends, you see, when we get to this point of worrying about ourselves, we become ultimately distrustful and cynical. And we lose sight of our mission. So stop asking the question, what will this do with me? The other question or statement that I've made is, well, this doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect me as much. But friends, that's the wrong place to be too. Because if you care just about you, you will miss out on what is happening. You will lose sight of what the hand of God is doing in the world. In an age of revelation, the right question is important for us as a church. And until the church arrives at this conclusion, that the brethren arrived in, in Antioch, we will be like a ship at sea, which has lost its anchor. We preach prophecy with a sense of dread instead of hope. Jesus never said, be troubled about prophecy. He simply said, be a good manager of my goods. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verses 44 to 46, and then we'll end there. Matthew chapter 24, verses 44 to verse 46. Jesus said, Therefore, 
you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Emphasis. Faithful and wise servant. Not a self-servant, but a servant of Christ our Lord. Whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. In an age of revelation, we need to be distributors of God's bounties. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Prophecy is being fulfilled. We need to be roused to action. The church needs to ask the right questions. Our work is before us. We are still in this community. There's still work to be done, despite the fulfillment of prophecy. And friends, I want to invite you to contemplate, to think deeply about your own soul and about what you're doing for your Lord. I can say more, but I really want to encourage you to ask the right question. And don't be left behind. Think about, in an age of revelation, how you can bring relief. With that said, I want to invite you to stand with me. And before you stand, let me finish my statement. In standing, I want you to make a commitment. Your life, your resources, commit everything to the Lord. I can't tell you what to do with you. And I can't tell you what to do with your things. But I can tell you that if you lay them all at the altar of Jesus, he will announce to you how you ought to live when prophecy is being fulfilled. So that's the commitment I want you to make, to surrender like that song so brilliantly puts it. I surrender all to Jesus. Not some, but all. Will you stand with me as we pray and surrender together? Loving Father in heaven, we are grateful, so grateful, for these many powerful, potent examples in Scripture. Where would we be without the Bible directing us? Where would we be without your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, moving upon us? And Father, today we want to surrender our lives to you. Lord, we want to give ourselves, our resources, our church, everything, holding nothing back wanting you to give clarity to us during a moment like this. Father, steer us away from thinking of ourselves and help us to start thinking of others. Help us, Lord, to see how your hand is working in this community and help us not to miss out on what you're doing. And Father, give us this grand, this great privilege to participate 
as servants of yours. Purify our hearts, cleanse us from sin. We are wholly yours, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to Jermaine Gale, pastor of the East Lansing University and Lansing Spanish Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the East Lansing University Church at 504 Ann Street in East Lansing, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11.20 a.m. Or visit the Lansing Spanish Church located at 111 North Magnolia Avenue in Lansing, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11.30 a.m. This program is a Strong Tower Radio production.